finally, I just missed God so much. I missed His guidance and His love and His grace. I finally uh, stumbled my way into a Calvary Chapel, and I, for the very first time in my adult life anyway, heard the gospel of grace. Although it pierced me and was music to my ears, it was just too good to be true. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today's guest is John Wallace, who at one time was a cultural Mormon who ultimately had some issues with LDS doctrine, but now chooses to be a follower of Jesus Christ and proclaim the grace that Jesus offers. You'll meet John and hear his story in just a moment. Thanks for tuning in this week. Our objective with First Person is to listen to the stories of people whose lives have been redeemed by Christ and set on a path of obedience and service to Him. We archive all of our programs online and through iTunes, so you can go back and listen to any past program. Just visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com, and click on the Listen button for the drop-down list of all the interviews. That's firstpersoninterview.com. Former Mormon John Wallace had been active in the LDS Church for two decades. He graduated magna cum laude from Brigham Young University and later from UCLA with a degree in dentistry. But now, as an evangelical believer in Jesus Christ, John has a burden to reach Mormons with the true gospel of grace. Before we explored his past, I began by asking John to tell me about his present life. I'm uh, very involved in my church, Calvary Chapel West Grove. In fact, I'm on the staff here and uh, am the director of the singles ministry. Um, I, I came to Calvary Chapel, um, well, a, about 15 years ago. Of course, I was sort of on the outside looking in. That there was still a lot of sort of Mormonism in me that was being unraveled over time. But I, I've been solid in, in the Bible and been involved in my church uh, at least for the last 10 years. And I live here in Southern California. I'm a, I'm a dentist. That's my, really my, my uh, core career. I practice part-time now. And I devote um, my Mondays and Fridays and most of my weekends to service here at the church and in this ministry to the Latter-day Saints. In your book, you talk about TBMs and CMs, true believing Mormons and cultural Mormons. Which were you? Well, I started out as a true believing Mormon. Um, And as I make note of in my book, there, there was a point in time right around my junior year in high school where I, and it was not subtle when I converted from a true believing Mormon to a cultural Mormon, there were, there were some deep uh, doctrines that I, I just could not wrap my brain around. And ultimately, I, although this wasn't something I felt free to confess to anyone, certainly within the Church, um, I, I sort of went down the road of going along to get along. And uh, what I find encouraging is that on many of the Latter-day Saint uh, blogs today, these are Mormons talking with other Mormons, uh, a lot of them insist that you designate who you are in terms of being a true believing Mormon or a cultural Mormon. And I find that encouraging because that uh, at least goes to show that they do acknowledge that there are those that truly believe and that there are those that, uh, you know, they're still Mormon, they still go to church, mm-hmm. and they probably don't smoke cigarettes and whatnot, but, but they don't necessarily believe in the doctrines. They, they just are Mormon sort of culturally. All right, as a TBM then, at one time in your life, what does that mean? What, what did you believe, in, and uh, was it really a, a legalistic system you eventually felt that you just couldn't live with? 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, initially, it really comes down to Joseph Smith. And as a young boy, they present Joseph Smith as this heroic figure and you know, an angel uh, appearing to him and, and uh, handing over eventually the, the golden plates and the, the sort of um, miraculous translation of those plates. And it was really based on Joseph Smith. And my understanding as, as a young boy and even in my early teen years is we've got Jesus. I mean, we, we are the true Church of Jesus Christ. But we've got a, a lot of other good stuff. In fact, we have, we have prophets today, and that prophet speaks to God directly and then uh, gives us the skinny, and, and so that, that's why we're superior to other religions. And, and in terms of legalism, um, I, I saw it as an opportunity to rise above other people. Ultimately, once you go to the temple and and where the garments of the holy priesthood, then, of course, you're, you're really elite. And, and, of course, there are a lot of rules and regulations that one must follow to maintain that sort of worthiness. There, there's definitely built into the cake a, a sense of, I am proving my worthiness to return to God. Now, by the time I was an adult and a cultural Mormon, I, I was deeply conflicted because I was still obeying all those rules. I, I was still abstaining from drugs and alcohol and cigarettes, and I was wearing the garments and uh, going to church every Sunday. I held leadership positions, but in my heart of hearts, I, I didn't really believe in the actual fountainhead of those doctrines, which was the mind of Joseph Smith. And mm. So ultimately, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm living as if I were a true believing Mormon, but secretly I, I'm, I was uh, I didn't really believe it. So you did the two-year mission uh, service? I did indeed. You attended yeah. BYU, graduating magna cum laude. I mean, you were what's a nice guy like you doing <laughs> yeah, that's in evangelicalism right. well, today? Well, interestingly, uh, there's, uh, and I'm not alone, there are plenty of Latter-day Saints that uh, certainly looked the part. I looked good in a suit. Uh, I, I was a good student, um, went on, of course, to grad school and whatnot. And uh, so I, I, I lived the part uh, outwardly, but again, um, I, I think ultimately because my original foundation was in uh, the Bible and the biblical understanding of who Jesus is, and by that I mean my first church was the First Baptist Church of Lakewood. My parents were raised Methodist, but when my parents moved to Long Beach in the 1960s, they gravitated toward the First Baptist Church, and we were Baptist until I was eight years old. So I, I, I thank God for that, because I think ultimately when the deeper doctrines of Mormonism came floating into my view by the time I was 16, 17 years old, I was able to identify them as at least disturbing, if not uh, flat-out heretical. Yeah, you write about this in your book, of course, and I want our listeners to uh, to read that for themselves, but how old were you when this question about a man becoming God really bothered you? Yeah, I, I was 16 years old. I was a junior in high school, and as it turns out, my Mormon bishop was also my AP history teacher. So between classes, I went into Stan's room, and um, we were alone. And I just asked him point blank, because I, I had heard sort of through this, this grapevine, because, you know, back then we didn't have Google. It's not like you could, uh, you know, easily seek out th- some of these uh, stranger ideas. There were some, of course, uh, books that, that one could read, but I, I wasn't really privy to those. I, I had just heard, and I don't remember who through whom, but that, that God was once just a regular guy. And of course, he was a great guy in terms of uh, living all the, the Mormon principles and whatnot, but he became God. This God that we worship was once a man. And the, of course, the flip side of that coin was that, that we, if, if we stay true, 
to all of the uh, the rules of Mormonism and receive all the ordinances, including those in the in the sacred temple, that that I myself could someday become God, and and so I, I just very simply uh, posted that question to uh, uh, Bishop Stan, and I, I said, is this true? Is that what we believe? I mean, is the is the end game here that I would become God? And he was very disturbed by my question. I can still vividly see it in my mind. And he wanted to brush it aside. He said, John, you're too young to be contemplating these sort of deep doctrines. And I just looked at him like, please, you know. He, he knew me better than that. So he, he said, uh, it, it is true. It is true. It's what Joseph Smith taught uh, shortly before he uh, died, and, and it's what we proclaim to this day. It, it was like being kicked in the stomach by a mule. I, I, I was so shocked by this. Uh, I, I just, I needed time to process that. And I never fully processed it in terms of being able to come to any kind of acceptance of it. It, it just, it, it just seemed uh, so totally antithetical to everything i had ever thought of, of God as being. But even with that doubt, you still stayed Mormon and went through everything you went through, including attending BYU and, and all of that. That's right. So you, you lived with that for a number of years. That's correct, and it's a very burdensome thing. It speaks heavily, though, to the pressure within the Latter-day Saint community to toe the line and to at least put up a good appearance that you believe. In fact, um, back in that era, which would have been the early 1980s, um, it was not at all uncommon for the ward or the congregation or, or parents of a young man, for example, to tell him that, hey, listen, it, it's okay to go, if you don't have a testimony uh, of the Mormon faith, just go on a mission anyway, and you'll gain that testimony in time as you serve the Lord. And, mm-hmm. and I certainly fell in that category. Yeah. And in fact, I was very reticent to follow through on that commitment to go to Argentina on my two-year mission. I did, but it was against my better judgment. Well, I, I know that you didn't become a believer, a Christian believer, immediately after leaving Mormonism. That's a later story. But what was the tipping point for walking away from the Mormon Church? Yes, uh, it was Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it would have been 1994. And my buddy was in town. It was a gorgeous Sunday morning. Uh, he was also LDS, but sort of nominally so. And the question we had for ourselves that morning was, are we going to church or are we going to the beach? And, uh, you know, I looked outside, and, and uh, it was just one of those moments I thought, <laughs> we're going to the beach, which is what we did. But later that day, I, I, I had this sort of question-and-answer period with myself, and it was really very simple. It was this. Knowing what I know now, and knowing me as I do at the age of 27, or almost 27, if two Mormon missionaries came to me, and I had sort of a clean slate from a religious standpoint anyway, and presented to me the Mormon faith with with all of its details and whatnot, and and the plan of salvation, and, and the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith and whatnot, if they presented that to me today, would I embrace it, and would I want to be part of it? And the answer... Uh, was so crystal clear uh, and so powerful, and the answer was <laughs> not in a million years. So my second question to myself was, well, if I would not receive it anew, why do I cling to it? And uh, I, I made a, a very conscious choice that day, enough, no more, and, and, and I walked away, and I never went back. We'll continue this conversation with John Wallace, the author of Starting at the Finish Line, coming up on First Person. When you join us next week, you'll hear from author Randy Alcorn. 
Every day I get emails from people, I mean, every single day about various books where people say their lives have been transformed through this book. And I go, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I could never have done that. And I give him the glory for it. He's the author of Safely Home, Heaven, and many other great books. We'll talk with Randy Elkhorn next time on First Person. My guest today is John Wallace, the author of Starting at the Finish Line, The Gospel of Grace for Mormons. And John, uh, we're going to skip ahead for the moment and just say that your book is a very helpful theology book correcting the untruths that are in the Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints, and expounding on the truth of the Bible, the truth of the cross. And uh, I find it very helpful, and I, I want our listeners to understand that you go very much in depth on these issues. Well, yes. Uh, when I started this project, uh, my first question to myself was, do, do, do I make this a story about myself in terms of how I came out of Mormonism and into the gospel of grace, biblical Christianity, and, and sprinkle in some theology? Or do I write a book that touches more on theology and, and sprinkle in a little bit of John Wallace and, and his story. And I'm very grateful that God led me to choose the latter of the two. I, I, I think it speaks more powerfully and hopefully is more relatable to the Latter-day Saint that may be struggling with his or her faith. All right, let's pick up your story. When you decided to uh, walk away from Mormonism, you didn't fall into the arms of the Evangelical Christian Church and come to Christ. Uh, there were some intervening years there, right? That's right. I, I left Mormonism in 1993-1994, uh, and there were some uh, years of pretty wild living. Uh, it, it's not uncommon for the Latter-day Saint, when he or she leaves the Mormon faith, to sort of conclude that if Mormonism isn't true, then nothing is. And uh, I, I knew that if I reached out to God, uh, the only God I knew was Mormon God, that he would call me to repentance and, and, uh, and, and have me return to the Mormon Church, and I, I just couldn't abide that. And so I just distanced myself uh, as much as I could, but he just kept pulling and pulling and pulling at me until finally I just missed God so much. I mm. missed his guidance and his love and his grace, and I, I finally uh, stumbled my way into a Calvary Chapel, and I, for the very first time in my adult life anyway, heard the gospel of grace. And it, although it pierced me and was music to my ears, it was just too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, I, I love what you wrote about that in your book. You, you, you talked about walking into a, a worship celebration and you looked around and said, what are they celebrating? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And they were the most joyful people I'd ever seen. <laughs> and, and our pastor had said, will, will you please stand and, as we worship the Lord and, and celebrate God's free gift of eternal life? And I thought, what? <laughs> free <laughs> gift? Why would eternal life be free? I mean, then any old dummy could receive it. And, but I couldn't deny the fact that these people were exuberant and, and their joy was authentic. I'd never seen anything like it. Well, let's tackle some of the issues at hand. Uh, you write about them in your book, starting at the finish line. How do Mormons view the Bible, and how do we respond to their questions about it? That's a great question. Joseph Smith, uh, in his 13 Articles of Faith, the, the eighth of which uh, reads as such, we believe, Joseph Smith said, that the Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. So, unfortunately, um, the Latter-day Saints although they do honor the Bible, and they have canonized the King James Version, anyway, into their, one of their four standard works, it's sort of a hit-and-miss thing. If there's a verse that contradicts any of Joseph Smith's teachings, well, then that's one of the verses that was not translated correctly. On the other hand, 
when they read, for example, Matthew 5.48, where Jesus says, Be therefore perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect, well, then that's one of the good ones, you see. And so they cherry-pick. It's, it's heads I win, tails you lose. The problem is, they never, Joseph Smith never really uh, clarified which of the verses could be trusted and which could not. And so one of, the, one of the key points I make in my book is, look, is the Bible the Word of God, or is it an instrument in the hands of Satan, which is what Joseph Smith insisted, or, or is it both? Is it both? And if it is both, how can I identify the verses that are good for me and which are the ones that are tampered by Satan? So it's a real conundrum, and it's a very difficult thing for the Latter-day Saint to answer. So when you have this conversation with your Mormon friends about the Bible specifically, uh, how do you respond to their claims about it? I ask them the very simple question. When you say that the Bible is not translated correctly, how did you arrive at that? What proof do you have of that? And most of them will just say, well, everybody knows that the Bible is sort of a hodgepodge, and they will point to the, the wide range of modern-day translations as being distortions of the Bible, hmm. and therefore it cannot be trusted. So then I come back to one of, one of my favorite tools, and, and what I talk about at some length in my book is uh, just the tremendous amount of uh, archaeological, paleographic evidence that we have that the Bible is accurate. The Dead Sea Scrolls alone authenticate the Old Testament. There's just no way around that. And on the flip side of the coin, I like the fact that you pointed out uh, that there's been no archaeological discoveries of of what Joseph Smith experienced in New York. That's right. Of course, their answer to that is, well, we're still looking. We'll find it (laughs) at some point. All right, so the Bible is one major point. The cross of Christ is another major point, and you spend a great deal of your time in your book expounding on, on the theology of the cross and what that means. Now, why uh, focus on that with those of the Mormon faith? Because they have a distorted view of what Jesus was accomplishing on that cross. Unfortunately, Latter-day Saint theology insists that Jesus' death and uh, sacrifice on the cross was, in fact, necessary. They call that the atonement, his assuming of all of our sins on his shoulders, both in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross, was necessary. But in a sense, Wayne, it was a down payment. And... Our job now as good Latter-day Saints is to make sure that we make that monthly payment, and we do that by being obedient to God. So therefore, the third article of faith, which is really the linchpin and foundational doctrine that, that I refer to as Jesus Plus, is this. The third article of faith says, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved, comma, by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. So my contention is every there should be a period after uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ, but of course Joseph Smith had to add that other clause. And what that says then is that what Jesus did on the cross is insufficient. We have got to do our part, and together it's a co-op. Jesus did his part, we've got to do our part, and that is salvation. And hence the subtitle of your book, The Gospel of Grace for Mormons. That's right, and of course to the Latter-day Saint, uh, grace is God's mysterious, enabling power to help you obey all of his commandments and return to live with him someday. Therefore, what we, what we hear often, and what I have dubbed the sort of Mormon mantra, is this. We are here on this earth to prove our worthiness to return to live with Heavenly Father someday, despite the fact that the Bible clearly shows that, yeah, we're, we're not worthy, and we're never going to be worthy. We are sinners saved by grace. Yeah. What ought to be music to their ears ends up being uh, news that is sort of preposterous and overly simplistic. It's just too good to be true. Uh, you have a knack to illustrate these points. I, I just got to point this out in your book. I so enjoyed the illustration uh, about the down payment on the house. 
A young couple was given the gift of a house, but they found out the gift only involved a down payment, and they had to make exorbitant monthly payments. And that, right. that illustration really brings uh, this whole point to life. I hope it does. And the follow-on, of course, is that the Christian version of that gift, and that is that the young couple receives a house from their wealthy uncle who bought the house and paid in full. In fact, when the realtor hands over uh, the keys to the house, uh, he also she also hands over an envelope that has the trustee. And so the, the young couple, the young Christian couple says, well, what, what's our part in this? What do we do to receive a gorgeous mansion like this? And she says, um, well, <laughs> take the keys and open the door. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, and, and then the celebration really kicks in because yeah. they realize that it's uh, it's not that they deserved it, but their their uncle loves them so much that he just he just couldn't not buy them that house. He couldn't stand to watch them struggle anymore. There's so, that celebration now free. again. There's That's that celebration. Right. All right. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, uh, John. I don't hear any argument in your voice. I just hear clear facts. And I, is this the tone of of the conversations you have with your Mormon friends? Ideally, yes. However, unfortunately, there's an issue. And I, uh, now that I am well outside of Mormonism, looking back in, 20 years removed, I, I truly believe, Wayne, that the, what makes dialogue with the devout Latter-day Saint difficult is, is this issue of pride and the, this idea of accepting that eternal life is a gift, that none of us are worthy of it, but God loves us and we receive this gift as the gift that it was meant to be, and, and all we can really do is, is just be grateful for it. The other thing they don't understand, and, and they're not going to understand until they are regenerated by God's Holy Spirit, is that once we are born again and God's Spirit dwells within us, then and only then can we actually love Him and, and, and seek to reciprocate that love and, and obey Him and serve and love others. Not because we have to, not because it's a commandment, but because we want to. And this idea of salvation being a gift for anybody and ever, even the knucklehead, even the guy that has tattoos on his arm, even for the gal that smokes two packs of cigarettes a day, God loves us all equally and is not asking us to qualify in any way except to receive his son. That message, for as beautiful as it is, is the great equalizer. And a lot of Latter-day Saints don't want to be equalized. It'd be like being a straight-A student and then being lumped in with what the straight-A student perceives to be uh, the, the D and F students, and we're all made equal. And I, I make point of that in my book um, by expounding upon the parable of the laborers in the field, that, that they all received one denarius. This is a picture of our salvation. But this, this cuts deep into that heart of pride that, unfortunately, Mormonism sort of engenders and fertilizes and grows over time. And uh, again, you, you almost have to be part of it and then be removed from it to even recognize it. And, and, and that's probably my greatest frustration in dialoguing with Latter-day Saints. John, I, I just sense a deep love for people, all people, not just those uh, of the Mormon church or those who are like you, but you really want to reach back and help them know the truth, don't you? I do. It drives me every day. And this love, of course, comes from outside of me. It's God's Spirit living in me now and burning in me. And it occupies my every moment at this point in my life. As you've heard today, John Wallace has a deep desire to reach people with the true message of the gospel of grace. And he's in a unique position to be used to the Lord for just that purpose. 
If you'd like to learn more about John and his book, Starting at the Finish Line, please visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. You'll find additional information and help on this topic, as well as a link to the book. Again, firstpersoninterview.com. And if you'd like to comment on today's program, please use our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. There you can see what others are saying and leave your own comment. Facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. And then check out our audio archive online at firstpersoninterview.com. Well, next week, our guest will be author and speaker Randy Elkhorn. I hope you'll join us for that interview. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard, hoping you'll join us again next week for First Person Interview.